This is Talk RL Podcast. All reinforcement learning, all the time. Interviews with brilliant folks from across the world of RL. I'm your host, Robin Chohan. Dr. Pablo Samuel Castro is a staff research software engineer at Google Brain. He's the main author of the Dopamine RL framework. Pablo, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So can you tell us a bit about your job? Um, like, what is the staff research software engineer role uh, at Google Brain like? Right. So um, in Google Brain, we have two types of roles, the software engineer and the research scientist. Uh, software engineer precedes research scientist. So I, think, I don't think uh, research scientist was a role until, um, I don't know, maybe at most 10 years ago. Um, so I joined Google as a software engineer uh, after finishing my postdoc. Um, and initially I was doing more applied machine learning in ads. So two years ago, uh, after I had transferred to Montreal, the brain team opened up and I was lucky enough to be able to transfer there. So I'm officially a software engineer, although what I do on a day-to-day basis, I'd say, is more like what a research scientist role is. And I think really that's kind of how everybody sees these roles. It's more of a spectrum rather than a binary thing. So you have software engineers that are a bit more heavily on the engineering side, like, for instance, people that, that build TensorFlow and things like that. They're really working on, on hard engineering problems. And then you have people, maybe a bit like me, that are a bit more on the, on the research side. And same on the research scientist uh, side. There's people that are really just focused on the research and others that are um, a bit more heavy on the engineering side. And you have everything in between. So it's really uh, the name itself is, is more um, a question of expectations, like when you're trying to get promoted or, or figuring out compensation, that type of thing, you get evaluated on certain components of, of what your role represents. So for engineering, um, you have to write high quality code and, and demonstrate um, that you're solving challenging problems with, with elegant solutions and that type of thing. What are you working on these days at work? So I'm working on a few things. So half of my research is actually in the intersection of creativity and machine learning. So I do some a bunch of work with that. Uh, I have a project uh, to generate lyrics, so basically to help um, songwriters uh, with with lyrics to, to write more interesting lyrics. Um, do a bunch of other stuff with with music and music generation, specifically with um, their use in live performance. Um, so I do some work with that, and the other half or Probably most of my work, more than, more than half, I'd say, is, is in reinforcement learning. And here I'm more focused on, on, I guess, what you call fundamental reinforcement learning. So looking at the, some of the core algorithms and some of the, uh, the core theories behind, behind these, these methods. Um, more specifically, what I've been thinking about a lot lately is, is representations and the types of representations that are learned by reinforcement learning agents and what it even means to be a representation, what it means to learn a representation and why you'd want to learn a good representation. I looked back at your master's thesis and your PhD dissertation quite briefly. They're, they're very detailed, but I wanted to ask you a couple, uh, about a couple concepts that showed up in there. Sure. Um, your master's thesis involved Bayesian exploration Mm -hmm. and you talked about hyper MDPs. I wonder if Mm -hmm. you can help us understand what, is a hyper MDP, and is it related to a belief MDP? Is it a different thing? It's it's related to a, a belief MDP, but this was um, so it's, it's essentially you you maintain 
almost like, um, I guess it's very, quite related to a belief MDP. I'm not sure, I don't want to misspeak and say that, that they're the same. Um, it's quite possible that, that, that they're actually the same object. Uh, but essentially, the, the idea is that uh, you don't maintain a single MDP from which you do your planning or your learning, but you maintain um, sort of a higher level object from which you can sample MDPs. And so this is where the Bayesian part comes from. So you maintain uh, sort of a, a variance over what, what you can sample, and this you use to, for instance, do exploration. So if you're very confident about certain parts of the, of the MDP, um, you'll be more prone to, to choose greedily in, in those areas, whereas in other areas where um, there's, there's a bit more variance, then you, when you sample uh, multiple MDPs, you're going to get different um, types of systems, and this, this can induce uh, better exploration. And th this is what I was uh, looking at in my master's thesis. So if you had this um, hyper-MDP that you could sample MDPs from, what what uh, form would it take? Like, how would you represent such a object? Um, is it a concrete thing or is it a more conceptual thing? No, 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 it's, it's a concrete thing. Um, so you, you maintain what are called information states. Um, and so the way we were doing it was, was fairly simple, just with counts. Um, so for, for each uh, state, you essentially maintain a set of counts. Um, and from this, you can, you can derive a method for, I think we were using Thompson, Thompson sampling. So this was over 10 years ago. So it's possible my, <laughs> I haven't thought about this in a while. So it's possible my memory's failing me. But, uh, so we were using Thompson sampling with these counts. So for instance, if you have a lot of counts for, for a particular state for the, for the next state transitions, um, the, the variant in the MDPs that you sample from, from those counts is going to be much lower than, than for other states where you, your counts aren't as, as high. And so, um, we, for my master's thesis, we were approaching this as a linear programming problem. And, um, so you can, uh, if I recall correctly, we were essentially drawing a bunch of samples. Then we construct this, this, uh, kind of rollout tree of the possible MDPs that you can sample from that. And you solve this rollout MDP, uh, this rollout tree, uh, using linear programming. So it's, it's fairly expensive, but this was at a time before, um, deep net sort of thing for, for reinforcement learning. So the problems we were tackling were a lot smaller and we were approaching it more from a theoretical angle. Okay, thanks. And then you're, on your PhD dissertation, you mentioned, um, or it, was, it involved bi-simulation. Can you help us understand what that concept is? What is bi-simulation? Sure. So bi-simulation is a, is a notion that comes from concurrency theory. And that notion of bisimulation came from the, the concept of simulation. So the idea here was if you have some complex system that you don't really get to see the internals of it, but you want to be able to say things about it, um, maybe you can construct a simulator of it. And so the, the way it would work is almost like a game. So for whatever transition the real system makes, you can simulate that transition with, with, your, with your simulator. So if you can demonstrate that this is the case, and by demonstrate, I mean prove it mathematically, then that means that whatever um, verification that you'd want to do, for instance, that you'll never reach some dangerous state or that um, you'll only reach it with low probability, uh, you can do on your simulator because it exactly simulates your um, your real system. So bi-simulation is, is a bit stronger in the sense that it, it tells you that two systems uh, simulate each other, in essence. So uh, initially in concurrency theory, this was... Um, 
this was studied in the in systems that were deterministic, so non-stochastic. And here you can have a same notion of two-way simulation. But when you start adding stochastic transitions, it becomes a little trickier. And here's where where the notion of bisimulation that 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 we use in in MDPs um, started coming about. Uh, so here, rather than looking at this two-way simulation, you're really looking at these um, two systems uh, concurrently. And so actually, there's a there's a neat proof technique that's called co-induction, which is the dual of induction that that we all know about. And it's through these these proof techniques of co-induction that you can prove things about these um, bisimulation uh, relations. And so when I say relation, it means that it's it's an equivalence relation. So you can, if you're now if we're talking about uh, MDPs, you can question whether two states are bisimilar. And when they're bisimilar, that means that they're behaviorally indistinguishable. So you can think of it as, as sort of as a state aggregation methodology. So if you were able to complete, compute the bisimulation equivalence relations in an MDP, then you could potentially reduce the size of your MDP by collapsing all states that are within the same equivalence class. So what does it mean to be bisimilar? Um, you say that two states are bisimilar if they, for all actions, they have the same immediate reward. And then also for all actions, they have the same probability of transitioning into equivalence classes uh, of your bisimulation equivalence relation. So you can see it has kind of this, this recursive um, definition to it or kind of circular definition. Um, and the reason this works is, is via this, this notion of co-induction that I was mentioning before. So if you're able to demonstrate, to compute this bisimulation equivalence relation, and we have algorithms for doing this using just standard dynamic programming, then you can collapse the, um, the state space of your MDP. So a lot of my work in my PhD was looking at these, uh, these equivalence relations and seeing how they relate to, for instance, just grouping states based on optimal value functions. So if two states have the same optimal value, maybe we group them together and how does that relate to by simulation equivalence relation? Or what if you group states that are equivalent under um, all policies or under a special class of policies? Um, and I also looked at that uh, in the case for POMDPs, which gets a bit more interesting because you have partial observability. And here there's a very close relation to predictive state representations, uh, which is something that um, a lot of people thought about. I think some people still think about it now, but it's not as, as prevalent as, as it used to be. So these are um, equivalence relations, and they can be, so they're, they're 0, 1, they're, they're binary, right? So either two states are bisimilar or they're not. You can consider a generalization of this, um, which makes it a bit more, a bit smoother. And this is what uh, by simulation metrics um, are. And so here, it's it's rather than than this zero one relationship that you get with equivalence relations, you have a distance. And the property, the important property of them is that if two states have a distance of zero, that means that they are equivalent um, according to the notion of by simulation equivalence relations. And the closer two states are, um, the, the closer they are to being truly bisimilar. And so what this allows you to do now is, is you can, for instance, say, create epsilon balls. Um, so you, you're going to group together all states that are within epsilon of each other according to this bisimulation metric. And obviously, this is a lot uh, more expensive and more difficult to compute. Um, and you replace the... So the Equality of rewards is replaced by just simply the absolute difference of, of the rewards. Um, but the equality of, of transition probabilities, that's using the Kantorovich, or what's not now most, uh, most known as the, the Wasserstein one. 
And so that Wasserstein is expensive to compute and you have to compute it multiple times for all pairs of states and all actions. So it gets really expensive. But that's, that's essentially the idea. It's this really nice theoretical tool. Um, what's really nice about it is that um, the distance between two states is an upper bound on their difference in optimal value functions. So that means that if you do group states uh, that are, say, within epsilon of each other, um, you know that the approximation error that you're going to get uh, for the optimal value function is going to be bounded by epsilon. So it sounds like another type of generalization. We're, we're generalizing um, the, the policy across similar states. Like if, if, if you didn't do that step, and just fed all these similar states. I mean, I was re looking at a recent paper, DeepMDP, that 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 showed two images and from asteroids. And in one image, the 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 asteroids were blue, and the other one it was a different color. The states were different, but it didn't really matter in terms of actions and rewards, in terms yes. of the NDP. And so it said those those were by similar. So we would we would hope that our RL algorithm would figure that out. But is is what you're saying that you could um, uh, to use a different state representation before your, let's say, your model-free RL even begins so that it, it, it knows that those those two are the same? Right, so that that's the hope. So if you had an oracle that was able to give you this by simulation metric for your um, the MDP that you're, that you're trying to uh, learn a, an optimal policy over, if you had this oracle, then you could presumably construct a, an embedding or a representation of your states that, such that for instance, the Euclidean distance or, or some type of distance in this in this manifold um, is exactly the bisimulation metric. So if you have that, then um, essentially you're collapsing together states where, for instance, in the example that you're mentioning, pixel differences that really don't have any uh, play any role in terms of the dynamics, uh, they, they get collapsed together. And so in this deep MDP paper, that's kind of what they were what they were arguing. So they're um, the 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 result that they have there that relates it to by simulation metrics is, is saying that if um, according to their their notions of Lipschitz continuity, if two states two ground states get mapped to the same latent state, um, that only happens when those two ground states are exactly bisimilar or have by simulation distance of zero. So that means that you're not you don't want to collapse two states that are behaviorally distinguishable because then if 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 you're collapsing them and you're making policy choices for this collapsed state, then you, you might be making suboptimal choices for one of them. Whereas if they, they are bisimilar, then um, you can uh, be sure that choosing the same action for, for both of them is, is okay because they, they are bisimilar. So the, the problem here is, is that the, I started with saying, say you have this oracle and obviously you don't have this oracle. Um, so that's actually one of the things I'm, I'm working on quite a lot as well, and, and it's somewhat related to this, this notion of representation that I was mentioning, um, is how, is there a way that you can take this, this nice theoretical object, that's, that's the bisimulation metric, and incorporate it into the learning process such that it um, helps you with building better representations that are able to generalize more? Thanks for explaining that to us. Oh, I hope that made sense. <laughs> Um, well, I followed some of it and what I do, I'm going to listen to this again and I'm going to go back and look at these papers because this is really interesting. So I wanted to ask you about a paper you co-authored called A Comparative Analysis of Expected and Distributional Reinforcement Learning that was with uh, Claire Lyle uh, and Mark Belmer. Um, so could you help us understand what's the main idea of this paper? 
Right. So, so distributional reinforcement learning is this, um, this, this new way of, of thinking about reinforcement learning that Mark and, and Will Dabney and Remy Munoz put, uh, published in, uh, 2017. Um, where if you think about the, the, the Bellman backup, where you have the reward plus the, the discounted sum of expected future rewards. That's what um, we've been using for, for many, many years. Um, you have that expectation, which is the expectation of the expected uh, value of the, of, the, of the future trajectories according to, to your policy. Um, so what the, the neat thing that they did is they said, what if we replace that expectation with uh, the distribution? So rather than, than backing up single values, we're backing up distributions. And so they, they did this. They, they introduced an algorithm they, they called C51 in the paper where they're essentially maintaining... Um, a finite support over the possible values. And so they're essentially adjusting the distribution with, with each backup. And they were able to show that doing this uh, gave some, some really significant advantages in, in Atari games, which is where they were running their, their, um, their experiments on. So this was, I mean, as, as a mathematical notion, it, it was really interesting and really neat. Um, but also empirically, um, the fact that, that it works better was, was, uh, I guess somewhat surprising because it, it, it didn't necessarily, even though they had convergence guarantees, they didn't have um, guarantees for necessarily having better performance. So the, the idea for this paper was to try to investigate where is this advantage coming from and um, what are the situations where we don't have an advantage. And so Claire did a lot of theoretical work um, starting from, from ground zero. So let's take the, the simplest uh, case that the tabular, tabular representations of states um, and comparing these two um, these two ways of, of doing reinforcement learning, and so the way um, the way we did it was uh, by she she'd call it a thought experiment. So if you were to observe the same exactly the same trajectories, this, exactly the same samples um, with both types of algorithms, so you can imagine running the simulator sort of in parallel, but um, the, the the two copies are are exactly synchronized. And you perform the backups, both the expectational or the traditional backup and this distributional backup. Um, what happens when you get to the end? Is there any difference? So it turns out that in the tabular case, there's no difference. So that you don't really gain anything from doing um, distributional RL. When you go to the linear case, if you're doing uh, representing your distribution as a, as a cumulative distribution function, a CDF, rather than, than um, a probability mass function, then you also have exactly the same thing. So that essentially what you get in the end, the performance of these two is 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 the same. If you're not representing as a CDF, then you don't necessarily get the same thing. Not that one's better, they're just kind of different. And, and she had some experiments in there that basically showed sometimes distributional wins, sometimes uh, expectational wins. It's it's just different. Now, when you go into the nonlinear setting, which is what we typically use with with uh, deep nets, then you really start seeing a difference with um, with distributional. And empirically, we we show that this difference really comes with the expressivity of of your representations. So we were taking um, linear, we were doing essentially linear function approximators by using a Fourier basis, and you can increase the order of this Fourier basis. And as you increase the order, uh, distributional really started to shine more. So the, the point of the paper was essentially to show that um, it's almost like a to-be-continued paper because we, 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 we demonstrated that it's really distributional combined with, with deep nets where you, where you see this advantage. So um, since then, we've still been trying to um, answer this question with, with uh, some follow-up work. 
Okay. And then when you described um, representing the distribution using a CDF or the PMF, um, as, and so so which ones are the main distribution di- distributional RL algorithms using? Like C51 is using a PMF, is, is it? Yes. Not? Yeah. And then... So that, that was one thing that, that came out of this paper that uh, maybe we shouldn't be doing. We, we shouldn't be using uh, uh, PMFs when we do these, these uh, backups. So we had this other paper um, at AI Stats uh, this year um, where we were no longer using um, the... So we were, weren't enforcing that the, that that it be a proper distribution. So we got rid of the softmax, and we were stable, still able to prove that that this converges. Um, it still was a PMF. Uh, so that uh, kind of dem- the results we got were were not um, state of the art in, in a sense. So we weren't able to to win over what we had before. Um, so the AI stats work happened before this this. Uh, AAAI paper of the comparative analysis. So the comparative analysis kind of demonstrated that you do actually uh, need the need the CDF to be able to to perform uh, better. And so something like Quantel regression um, seems to work uh, better than than C fifty one. Okay, and then would IQN fall into that category as well? Yes. Yeah. Along with Q, uh, with Quantel regression. Yes. Okay, and so interesting. Okay, so the idea of 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 looking for this expectation equivalence is that just to help you understand what's happening, or do you really want to find that expectation equivalence to know that it's correct? Well, ultimately, the way these these algorithms are behaving is is you're still taking this argmax when choosing the action, right? So you have whether you're representing your value as a single number or as a distribution, you're going to be taking an argmax. Um, and that argmax is essentially taking the first moment of, of your distribution or just taking that expectation that you were backing up. So um, in terms of analyzing uh, with, res- uh, with respect to performance of these agents, you do kind of want to look at this expectation. Now, obviously, there can be other methods that look at other moments of the distribution, like the variance or the skewness or something like that. Uh, but we're, we weren't looking at those at those methods. And I think that's that's an interesting avenue to look at, but there's no kind of canonical algorithm for for that uh yet at least so um we focused on the uh, on these expectations okay and and is it is it still unclear why distributional rl is helpful or is this now more clear no i i wouldn't say i mean maybe it's more clear than before but it's uh definitely not not a solved problem um so we've been doing some work where uh we have some evidence that suggests that it learns better representations um, and the, the, what it means to have better representations, what better means and what representation means is still, um, we kind of have debates about this. Uh, some of us in, uh, on the team have different uh, ideas for what this means, but in general, it does seem like on average, they have uh, quote unquote better quote unquote representations. Um, and this might actually come from uh, the fact that you could think of distributional RL as almost like uh, having auxiliary tasks, which if you think of papers like Unreal, um, they've been shown to to really help with the learning process. Um, maybe they're, they're serving as some type of um, regularization, regularization for your representations. Uh, that's, that's still kind of open, open for discussion. And these distributional RL algorithms, 
they they're they're performing really well, right? Like they perform better than than without them in general. That's why they're in Rainbow, and I think IQN is still state of the art on some Atari. Yes, yeah. So th- that's what, an important thing. It they don't win all the time, but uh, on average, in, in the majority of, of games, they do do seem to give um, quite a big advantage. Um, I think the more people are starting to to look into them. One of the difficulties is that. Uh, they they aren't as, as simple to implement as a as like some of the, the previous algorithms that that people use, um, but I think more and more people are starting to to really look into these and, and use them because they they do tend to perform better than uh, than expectational um, RL. And then aside from just their raw performance, um, they open up. I, th- I think they open up different types of policies, right? Like, could you not have, if you, once you have the full distribution, you could say, okay, I'm not going to take any risky moves that risk getting these low rewards. And so you might have a different policy to choose uh, across the, your distribution of value functions. Is that, is that cr- true? Uh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So the, I think it, it does open up a lot more flexibility in terms of what you can do and what you can say about um, the behavior of your algorithms. So as I was saying, m- most of the time, even though we're maintaining a distribution, we take the first moment when we're choosing our action, which is just the mean. Um, but if you, you could, as you're suggesting, take higher moments and, and make that inform the, the action choice, um, maybe for exploration or maybe for, for safe RL, um, it definitely opens up the, uh, the door for more possibilities. Okay. But in terms of exploration, um, so I'm trying to I'm trying to understand how these will help could help with exploration because I I think they're not um, if I understand correctly they're they're not capturing the uncertainty in in your transitions or your or what you don't know about the environment like I'm trying to imagine what these um, distributions look like when you start training as opposed to when you're done and are they are they informing you in the early stages of training about um, about where where exploration is needed. They're not right. Uh, not really, not really. Um, but they do. They do inform. I guess it would be more, a bit more applicable towards safe RL um, or uh, safe exploration, if you will. So we have we've generated a bunch of videos where, for instance, in Space Invaders, when you're close to dying, the distribution really shifts towards zero because it's uh, essentially saying there's not much hope in in what you can do. Um, I don't know, maybe that's a point where you want to explore as much as you can because you might be able to find one escape hatch or something to, to escape that uh, that situation where it seems like like uh, all hope is lost. Um, so, yes, I, I mean, I think I don't think there's, there's at least not that I know of an existing algorithm using these for exploration directly, uh, but I do feel that, that there, there is something there that could potentially aid um, in the in, in these algorithms. I wish I could have gone back and told my teenage self that we would be really seriously discussing Space Invaders at this point <laughs> in 2019. And this is serious work and serious business. <laughs> so there's a, I, uh, I was looking at another paper that you co-authored named A Geometric Perspective on Optimal Representations for Reinforcement Learning. Um, can you help us understand what, what was the general idea with that paper? So this paper, uh, and, and I, just to be clear, this is mostly Mark's uh, work. So I was um, assisting in this paper. Um, 
so uh, he it, like most of the ideas and everything came from him, and and um, I think he had a lot of really fruitful discussions with uh, Dale Schulman about this. But the the idea is he was again it it came from this this notion of trying to understand where the advantages of distributional reinforcement learning um, are coming from, and wondering whether if you if it's really coming from the auxiliary task uh, interpretation and in general um, how do auxiliary tasks help with with this work so out of this this idea and out of this work actually came two papers so the other one which which i'm not on is the the value function polytope paper that was at icml this year Um, so robert dadashi was the first author of that one um, where they essentially showed that you can view these these value functions as a as a convex polytope. And so that, uh, that theoretical work was used in the geometric perspective paper, um, where you could essentially show that, that vertices, uh, extreme vertices on this polytope correspond to, to deterministic policies. And so one way you can think of representations, um, if you think of a good representation as something that can represent many value functions, then you want to find a representation such that uh, the closest it can get to any any possible value function is is minimized, right? So if you have the if there exists a, an optimal representation, which I guess would be if you have ground states, would be exactly the ground states, then you would have uh, an approximation of zero um, or an error of zero when you're trying to approximate any value function because that the the representation is expressive enough to be able to represent all of those value functions. So the idea of the geometric perspective paper is um, trying to learn these representations by uh, minimizing this this approximation error with multiple value functions, not just um, the uh, the optimal value function. So it's not just trying to get to the optimal value function, and as long as you can represent that, then it doesn't really matter how how well you can express other value functions. And so by by viewing it this way, um, he uh, Mark was, was able to demonstrate that you can rephrase the, the, the learning problem as, as uh, a constraint programming problem where you essentially are trying to find this representation such that giving, given a, a large set of value functions, it minimizes the approximation error um, concurrently for all of these value functions. And so, so th- there's uh, some, some of my favorite parts of this paper are, are the visualizations where you have these, uh, this four-room grid world and if you use this technique, you're able to essentially visualize the activations of, of, uh, that all the cells give to the representation, and you have a much more um, comprehensive, I'd say, uh, uh, set, of, set of representations that, that they're able to cover the, the state space a lot more smoothly than what you would do if you were to do um, regular, just regular RL without, without this, this technique. And so this is related to... Um, this notion of, of learning some type of basis uh, which you use as a representation for expressing any type of value function. Yeah, I love the diagrams too. They really helped me um, visualize what was going on. So th- they were showing these adversarial value functions. And I'm trying to uh, just to, to really understand what these AVFs are about. Are they either um, synthetic uh, value functions that are trying to maximize some synthetic rewards that we that are not the one we actually care about. Yes. So um, the w- the way they work is that you you can essentially think of um, a, a vector of length of equal to the number of states, and so if you 
have this vector is if it's all strictly positive and you multiply this vector by by um, your value function when you're your approximated value function when you're doing learning then this will still converge to the optimal policy so you still recover your policy however if if some of these um, elements in this in this delta vector are negative then it's essentially you can think of it as, as, as states that you want to avoid, in a sense. So you want to try to avoid going into those states. And this changes, changes your value of function and induces a different policy. So this, in this way, by, by sampling these delta vectors, um, where you're each, each element takes on one or negative one with, with equal probability, you're going to end up with some states where you're trying to maximize um, the value function and in other states where you're trying to actually minimize the value function. And from this, you, you end up with, uh, with a different type of policy than, uh, than the optimal policy, which is what you would uh, end up with if, if this vector were all positive. Right, so the delta functions, uh, by, by doing the sampling, where you're sampling between negative 1 and 1, um, you essentially end up with, with uh, a diverse set of, of policies. Um, so, so essentially, he phrases the, uh, the learning problem as, as sampling a bunch of these delta vectors, and then uh, we use policy gradient to find the, the optimal policy for um, the induced value function uh, when, when you multiply with these, with these delta vectors, and then you try to find a representation that um, will, will minimize the approximation error for, for this set of value functions. So, and we're learning these AVFs at the same time as our main value function, is that right? Or is it in advance? Uh, it's in advance. So this is to learn the, the representation. Ah, so so it's like, um, if we learn all these other synthetic uh, value functions, then when we come to learn our the one we care about, then it becomes an easy linear task? That, that's, that right? that's the hope, yeah. Um, and depending what... Uh, what you want to do with these representations, um, you, you can either find the optimal policy or if you want something that's interpretable, um, like the, the figure three in the paper is, is what, what it's trying to demonstrate is that by using this technique, you get this um, basis, essentially, um, this representation that, that is a lot richer than what you would normally get with uh, um, by either just sampling random policies or by, by just uh, trying to compute the, the optimal value function. So I was curious about these delta functions. Um, I think in the paper, the delta function was just random. Is that right? Yes. So I'm, I'm just imagining if the state space got very lar like larger and the delta function stayed as a random plus one minus one um, sampled. So I'm just imagining that the, the delta function would come, become like kind of like no, like static noise as it, I mean, like in a small room, if you had some tiles with mi minus one and plus one and you kind of squint, you kind of see, mm. well, there's a blob of like areas we should avoid over there and a blob of areas we should, we should hit over there. But when it, when it, when the state, beca space becomes larger and all the tiles become really small, then it just becomes this, this fuzz. I wonder if that, if this method is, is, would scale, um, is independent of the scale of the state space. Well, or no, we it, is, it is still the delta in a different way. It's quite possible, yes. Yeah. So, so there is part of the the way the, the the idea was phrased is that really you have a distribution over value functions, and so you could presumably have a distribution that um, tries to ignore uh, uninteresting policies or interesting value functions, um, and 
the the delta idea is to try to get these extremal vertices of the polytope that I mentioned that are deterministic policies. But yes, uh, it, it doesn't scale super gracefully with, with the size of the state space because the number of policies, you if you were to take all of the delta values, it, it's 2 to the n, um, which is still better than, than a to the n. Uh, but um, but it's still uh, it's still somewhat uh, restricting uh, when when you try to go to large state spaces, and it's quite possible that that your intuition is is right that you end up with with a lot of noise. Um, in which case, you might want to consider uh, a different way of sampling the policies rather than doing this this delta technique. Um, but that uh, that's not something we we really looked at in the paper. Um, we did run some preliminary experiments on Atari with the same delta. Uh, idea, and we weren't able to quite get it working, which is why it didn't make it into the paper. But um, that I don't know. That suggests that we need a, a, an improved way of sampling these these policies um, when when you're going into large state spaces. Awesome. Okay, so now I want to move to dopamine, which is the original reason that I reached out to you and how I first heard your name. Um, you're the primary author of the dopamine RL framework. Uh, that's at github.com slash google slash dopamine. Um, I really like this this project, and um, the, the, the repos describes the project as dopamine is a research framework for fast prototyping of reinforcement learning algorithms. Uh, if I understand correctly, it supports specific DQN variants, um, including parts of Rainbow uh, and IQN. So I wanted to ask you, um, Pablo, how did you end up uh, writing this framework? So the um, it was really Mark's idea. So when I joined uh, two years ago, when I joined Brain, um, I hadn't I had assumed I had said goodbye to academia forever <laughs> when I finished my postdoc because this was at a time when it was very difficult to get a job in in the type of work I was doing in in machine learning and more theoretical machine learning. Um, so I thought I had said goodbye to academia, but then I was lucky enough to rejoin. And when I rejoined, Mark also joined the team. Um, he switched from DeepMind in London to, to Brain in Montreal. And uh, we knew each other from our master's because we did our master's degree together at McGill. And um, so we he had obviously been doing a lot of research still. So uh, we sat down and to, to try to do some research together. And we said, okay, let's start with uh, some implementation of DQN. And I went looking around and there were a bunch on GitHub, but it wasn't clear which one was reliable. Um, there was one from DeepMind, but I think it was written in Lua, which we didn't want to we didn't want to use. Um, we found some internal implementations, but they were a bit more complicated than we wanted, and because they were aimed for for something different. Um, and then finally, we just said, why don't we build our own? I mean, we're going to be iterating on this a lot. If we get to know the code base really well, then then um, it'll be much better for us. And we, if we do something that's as simple as it can be, it uh, will likely help other people as well um, that are doing similar type of research that, that we're doing. So we set out, set out to do this, and, and so it was a fairly long design process. I mean, we, we had a bunch of meetings at the beginning where we were trying to scope out what we wanted to do. Like, do we want to be comprehensive and have every single algorithm out there in every single environment? Or do we want to restrict ourselves, at least initially, to Atari and uh, DQN variants? And we ultimately decided to do that because we decided to just base our, our decisions on the research we wanted to do. So it was really, let's build something that, that is useful for us. 
and uh, under the assumption that we're not the only ones doing this research, so it will be useful for, for other people as well. And then we'll see how it goes. So we, after making that decision, it kind of became clear for us when we had to make calls on like what algorithms to include and, and um, other more technical design decisions. So you just released uh, Dopamine 2.0 very recently. What Can you tell us about that release? Right. So uh, initially we wanted to do um, just Atari because most of our research was in Atari and we just wanted to keep it simple and not um, get bogged down with, uh, with uh, trying to support other environments. And that was great. That worked great. Um, I mean, the, the the comparative analysis and the AI stats paper that I mentioned, they were all run on, on early versions of dopamine. So uh, when we put it out, it got a really good uh, response. Um, we also wanted to make sure that people would find it useful. We didn't want to put all this work into it and then find that, that nobody ended up using it. If we weren't going to use it, uh, we weren't going to put it in. But seeing how many people started using it and we started getting requests for supporting um, gym environments, general uh, open eye gym environments, um, we decided that, that it was probably the, the most natural next step. And so Dopamine 2.0 was meant to do that, to go beyond Atari and support uh, discrete domain environments from, from Jim. And so the, the idea with this was also to add an interface where it doesn't only support Jim. So if you want Jim, there's, there's a nice wrapper where you can just pass in the, the environment name and, and it works. But it also allows you to, if you have your own environment, um, to pretty easily just plug it into this, this API. Awesome. Okay. So I used this framework a little bit last October. And I found, um, like you said, it was it was uh, designed for Atari, and so I just did. Uh, I made a simple fork to allow it to take arbitrary inputs. Oh, cool! It sounds like that's not going to be needed anymore because it supports that out of the box, right? Yeah, if it's a gym environment, it should it should just work out of the box. Uh, there's uh, you might need a, a little bit of code if for for specifying observation shapes and things like that, but it should be pretty easy. You shouldn't have to to reinvent the wheel every time. And if it's a if it's a non gym environment, um, it still shouldn't be too bad. Um, you just have to set up the right hooks, but it should be pretty clear how to do that. So what what is your vision for dopamine going forward? Like, do you um, do you plan to grow it or change it in any way or maintain it as it as it is and and more fix bugs? What's the vision? Uh, yeah. So one of the things we wanted to do with dopamine is not. So we're primarily researchers, all of us. So we didn't want to be in a state where we're just maintaining dopamine all the time. Um, we want it to be useful for every, for a bunch of people externally, but not to the point where it requires us to be constantly fixing bugs um, and, and uh, maintaining it, which is part of the reason why we wanted to keep it as nimble as possible. And um, But going forward, I mean, some of the things... We, we've talked about is, is just making sure that we always have a state-of-the-art implementation, um, whatever algorithm is state-of-the-art at the moment. So right now, I still think it's it's for value-based agents. I still think it's Rainbow or IQN. Um, I don't think there's uh, there's there's any other that that's clearly the the, the new learner. And we obviously keep DQN because that's the one that where where these all came from. One thing I've been thinking about a lot is whether we can. Um, uh, start supporting continuous control, so more like policy gradient type methods. Um, that opens a whole uh, new set of, of, of complexities, but uh, I've been thinking more that maybe I should um, take that challenge, <laughs> just because it also relates to some of the research I, I want to do. So um, again, back to the, the, the initial idea that we build things when we need it for our research. I love the clarity 
uh, of this this framework. Uh, it, I love okay. knowing that we could rely on the implementations being correct. Yeah. Um, so it, it, I wanted to ask you about the gin configuration. Um, <laughs> yeah, is that is that something? Was that a big decision for for you to use that? Is that a is that a is that the future or? I don't know if it's the future. I really liked it. So when we started working on this, we were trying to figure out how to um, specify parameters that are needed in multiple places. So flags is kind of like the V0 of what you do. Um, so you pass in flags via the command line, but that means that you have to pass these values as parameters to all... Uh, so if you have a, a caller function that calls some object that creates an agent that creates a replay buffer and the parameter you need is the replay buffer, you have to add it as a parameter to all of these, through all of these steps. So that to me seemed kind of ugly. Um, you could also think of maybe creating, I don't know, something like a proto buff. So you just create an initial proto buff that contains all of your parameters. Um, I wasn't too keen on that either because it seemed you were still passing around a bunch of things um, from one function to the next that you maybe don't necessarily need. And so Jin was being developed uh, within Google by um, one of the people, one of the main contributors to Jin is actually the main, or one of the main contributors in TF Agents. And um, because I was doing some work with TF Agents at the time as well, um, they were using Jin. I, the, the reason I really like it is because you can specify in a single config file all the parameters for all of the objects in, in your experiment. So going back to the replay buffer example, which is created by the agent, which is created by the runner, which is created by the main calling function, you don't have to pass this parameter throughout all these all these calls. You can just specify directly in this one gin config file. And then you can you still have the flexibility to, to change these parameters on the command line. So it, it does, I do recognize it does take a little getting used to, even internally, um, a bunch of people do sometimes get confused by it, but I think it's it's worth the the initial ramp up. Once you, I mean, I I use it for everything now because I just find it super easy to to keep track of, of experiments I'm running and to try things with new hyperparameters really quickly. Okay, so I'm going to take a second look at Jen. Um, I, I kind of worked <laughs> around it, but but you, given your recommendation, I'm going to, I'm going to check that out. And that was a nice segue to TF Agents. So you were in, you were involved in TF Agents. Um, can you can you help me understand what 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 was your role on the TF Agents project? So TF Agents started at around the same time that we started building dopamine, and so initially we had a, a lot of meetings to try to see if we would work together, if we would just build one thing. But um, the scope of the projects it became clear at the beginning that the scope was very different. As I said, we wanted to keep dopamine as nimble as possible and really just very closely tied to our research interests. TF Agents was being a bit more ambitious and they wanted to really support many different algorithms, many different environments, and have it be very modular so you could kind of swap different pieces um, uh, without having to really break your, break your system. Um, so initially we still, uh, we still worked closely together because we, didn't, we wanted to make sure that, that um, we were aware of, of each other and, and sharing as much as we can. So I was mostly involved initially in implementing all the, the distributional RL stuff. So um, C51, uh, or, or I, I don't even remember now if they have uh, C51 out there. But uh, there was, if it's not there, there was at one point an implementation of C51 um, uh, that I coded up. So I was helping a lot with that. And, and just in general, uh, with whatever they were working on at the time, um, I was initially quite active with it. 
but then at one point it, it became clear that that dopamine and TF agents were really going to be two distinct um, two distinct frameworks and uh, but not competitive so we, we had many meetings about this we wanted to make sure that it wasn't just Google putting out two competing frameworks and then and leave people kind of confused I mean maybe people still are kind of confused but uh, from the beginning, it was very clear to all of us that that these are complementary frameworks. So where where TF agents, I think, is much better positioned to handle large, very large experiments or like more production type of experiments, or for running experiments where you're not really um, being disruptive with the algorithms too much, but more uh, combining different different aspects, different types of algorithms or different types of environments. Um, I think TF agents is, is likely better suited for that, whereas dopamine is, is really meant for um, what we call throwaway research. So this is research where you have some crazy idea that's that's quite disruptive. And so getting into the internals of the algorithm, we hope with dopamine is, is, is fairly easy and you can try these crazy ideas. Most of the time, these crazy ideas don't work. So that's why we call it throw, throwaway research because you throw it away. Uh, but uh, at least the hope was that with dopamine, you would be able to um, get this this answer of whether it's worth continuing uh, this this route or not. Um, you could get this answer quickly and then either continue or go on to the next um, to the next idea. Would you say TF agents is like the TensorFlow for RL? Like it's like the flagship um, RL framework for Google going forward, or is it is it maybe too early to say that? I think it's still too early. Um, So one of the big things uh, with RL is it's it's very sensitive to the type of problem that you have. Um, it, it still requires quite a lot of work up front if you have a new problem that's not one of the standard benchmarks to kind of get everything running smoothly and, and correctly, everything from, from figuring out scale of rewards to hyperparameter optimization. Um, and... So from my experience, like every problem is a, is different. And so internally, we have some people using TF agents. We have some people using dopamine. And it's really like whatever the, the sort of the message is, whatever fits your particular problem, go with it. Um, there's no notion of one framework is better than the other. Um, we're, I'm very proud of, of the, the, the team, the TF agents team. They've done a fantastic job. And I'm super supportive of them, and equally, they're super supportive of the work we do. And so we, we have had meetings where people come and they want to use dopamine, and when they explain their problem to me, I, I've, a few times I've told them, I think TF Agents is probably a better fit, so you should, you should check that out. Um, so it, it's hard to say, because I don't know if there... Maybe there will be someday one reinforcement learning framework to rule them all, but... Um, at this point, I don't see that happening uh, in the near future. It almost seems like it's going the other way. Like new frameworks are, are popping up all the time, and the problem is like just how to choose. Um, yeah, that. yeah, that's always a problem. I mean, you have n frameworks; none of them satisfy you. Too many frameworks, so now you have n plus one frameworks. <laughs> um, we, we we did fear that a bit with with dopamine and TF agents. Uh, I think, as I say, it's I think it's a consequence of all of these. Uh, problems being having their own particularities and so people just want to go to whatever will will allow them to solve their problem and, and iterate on their problem faster and, and more seamlessly.
What do you find most interesting in the world of RL these days? So, I'm, I'm, as I mentioned earlier, I'm, I'm really interested in the notion of representations and what this means for uh, for reinforcement learning and actually learning in general. I think um, one thing that bothers me uh, is that, for instance, in Atari, um, which is one of the standard benchmarks, we have these agents that have to relearn how to see, essentially, every time they play the game. So... Um, Ideally, what, what I'd want to have happen is that you have an agent that learns how to play Pong, and um, when, it, when you send it to a breakout, it doesn't have to relearn what a ball and a paddle means and how balls interact with paddles. And, and um, I guess in, in breakout, you can, you can break bricks. But um, there's still some shared dynamics across a lot of games, and it, it's one of the things that bothers me a bit, that we have to relearn these every time, and I think there's, there's some room there for, for exploration. Um, then aside from that, I'm also quite interested in, in actually seeing RL used for, for real problems. So, you, I mean, for forever we've seen papers that motivate um, the, the work uh, with real problems, but I, you, you don't see them actually being used in, in real problems um, all that much. And so there, there was a, a workshop um, uh, in ICML, I think, this year that... Uh, that uh, was looking at uh, reinforcement learning for real-world problems. Um, and I, I think that, so I don't think I'm the only one that's, that's interested in this. I think the community is starting to really think about this and, and how we can go beyond games and simulations and, and actually um, use RL at scale uh, with impactful problems. It's, it seems to me like when you start to consider deploying these policies, you right away have trouble answering questions about, you know, how safe is it? How can we be sure? How do, do we understand what it's doing? And all these things which are kind of often take a backseat to just raw performance on Atari or... Yeah, no, and, and th this comes back to the, this notion of each problem has its own uh, particularities that, uh, yeah, if you need it to be interpretable or if you need it to be safe, and that requires a certain types of algorithm. Um, and so... But if, if you're really focused on one particular problem, uh, then that should drive the type of research you do and whatever framework or software you end up building to really solve that problem. Um, and I hope, I mean, it's, it's, I'm in a place where I don't, I'm lucky that I don't really have to care too much about publication numbers. I know for a lot of academics, this is something quite stressful because it's how you advance in your career. Um, but I think the community is starting to, to realize that playing the, the numbers game isn't necessarily going to get us to these, these real-world problems because these real-world problems are going to require a lot of time and work with potentially no, no publications. Um, so, so it is something I think about. I have started doing a little bit of work with, with some external collaborations on that to try to um, get RL in the real world. <laughs> Maybe related to that, what do you think RL is going to be like going forward? Like if you look forward five or 10 years, will it be very recognizable to us incremental changes? Or do you think it's, um, do you think it'll be completely different? Do you think we'll be, um, some of these lines of research that we're following are going to, um, be seminal that would, will, will, will sprout whole different, um, uh, dimensions of this problem. What, what do you see in the future? Uh, it's kind of hard to say. I mean, this field is changing so much from year to year. Um, I 
wouldn't be surprised, and I, I wouldn't call this a prediction, I'm just, I wouldn't be surprised if the lines, and I, you already see this happening, but um, the lines between what we call RL and other types of machine learning fields become more blurred. So RL becomes more of, of um, a, a technique or a tool that you use along with many other tools to solve a, a larger problem. So it isn't just you're working on RL, you're working on, on problems um, that include RL as part of the solution. Awesome. Um, Dr. Pablo Samuel Castro, thank you so much for your time today and for your insight. You've taught us so much. Uh, I learned so much from reading your work and I look forward to reading whatever you do next. Thank you again. Thank you so much for having me. This was really fun. That's our episode for today, folks. Be sure to check talkrl.com for more great episodes.